Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Howdy, everyone. Welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Austin McCann. I'm the RUF campus minister here. Um, tonight we have a really special guest with us, uh, Titus Bagby, who is right over here. He's the RUF international campus minister. Okay. Uh, I love introductions. Okay. So Titus deserves one. Titus is a fighting Texas Aggie, class of 2010, graduating with a bachelor's degree in industrial distribution. He and his wife, uh, Crystal, met while studying at Texas A&M and were married in July of 2011. They have two daughters, Brighton and Blair, who are constantly keeping them busy but bring them so much joy with their contagious smiles. They're also expecting a new baby girl in about a month from now, right? Uh, So, yes. Tyson received his Master's of Divinity degree from Reformed Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. Before seminary kids, both Titus and Crystal enjoyed the experience of living overseas as international students in China uh, uh, for two years as foreign exchange students. So they, they ministered to them for two years in China. These experiences have cultivated a strong desire within both of them to extend and welcome friendship to those who are living far from home as they minister to international students here at Texas A&M. Titus refers to himself as a foodie uh, with extensive, extensive knowledge and good taste of many national and international restaurants in the BCS and Houston area. And every morning at 6 a.m. you can find Titus training with Camp Gladiator in hopes of one day becoming the Camp Gladiator champion for the 30 to 39 male competitor age range. Um, so that's Titus Bagby, everyone. We're really glad that he's here. He's joining us in our relationship series this fall. Normally what we do in RUF is we take a book of the Bible uh, through our large group and we just march through it. But every four years in the fall, we have a tradition in RUF where we look at the Bible and through the lens of the Bible into our relationships, how we relate to God, to one another, and to this world. Okay? So Titus is joining us tonight as we look at what it means as we relate to our idols and the idols of this world. Okay? So tonight we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. Uh, we have the scripture behind me here on the screen. Uh, would you follow along with me as we read uh, God's perfect word? This is Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those, uh, with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him in, they took him, brought him into the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like a gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will, get, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from, from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we, we thank you uh, for the opportunity tonight, for your word, and I pray that you would be with Titus. Lord, would you preach through him? Lord, would uh, we not leave tonight unchanged, but would you transform our hearts? Would you convict us where we need conviction? Would you comfort us where we need comfort? And would we see Jesus afresh again tonight? So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Readjust here until I find the right position. There we go. Awesome. Well, howdy. howdy. Good to be with y'all. Thank y'all for having me back at RUF Large Group. Um, it's always a pleasure being with you. Um, and as Austin said, I'm married to Crystal Bagby. She is 36 weeks pregnant. We have. I have two. Already have two beautiful daughters, Brighton and Blair, but then we're expecting baby number three here in, uh, on October 17th. So our life is about to get more interesting and a lot more exhausting. So please pray for us as we get ready to welcome our third child. And you will not find me at Stephanie Park anymore at 6 a.m. I injured my back uh, this summer, so unfortunately I'm out of the, the running for the 30 to 39 category for Camp Gladiator athletes. But maybe when I get to my 40s, we'll see. Um, but pleasure again being with you. Um, if you're wondering what RUF International is, um, we're the sister organization to RUF National, and uh, we're here to welcome the nations that are coming to Texas A&M. Uh, you may not know this, but you have over 6,000 international classmates that are here studying with you at Texas A&M. And I have an exercise for you this week. I want you to, at some point, go to the MSC and just walk all the way from the MSC to Zachary. And I want you to look at the people around you as you do and notice how the demographics of campus change as you're walking from the MSC to Zachary. Your mind might be blown to see that you're not just swimming in a sea of white people all the time, that there are over 120 nations here represented at Texas A&M. And that's what RUF International is here to do. We're here to welcome those people who are coming to us from far off places. We're here to give them the love of Jesus. And if you have an interest in, in participating in anything that we are doing this semester, we have, also have an Instagram account. I think it's RUF International underscore TAMU on Instagram. So please follow us on there. We have a lot of weekly events that we're doing. We have some that we do um, throughout the semester, some that are Bible study related, some that are hospitality related. You're welcome to any of that. 
I'm just going to put this plug out there as well. We're doing a trip to Houston this weekend. If you don't have any plans, we would love to have two more drivers to come along with us. We're going to go to two great international restaurants in Houston, and we're also going to take a trip down to NASA. So if you're interested, come find me after service. I'd love to tell you more about our ministry and what we do. Um, tonight, we are continuing your relationship series. And um, tonight, we're also talking about how do we relate to the idols, our idols, in our hearts and idols of those around us. And so, Titus, why are we talking about this? Why can't we just get to the sexy stuff like dating, marriage, and sex? Um, which actually proves my point. <laughs> those are the things that we idolize so often in our lives. Um, and we might think of idolatry as this thing that's long dead and gone. It's something that belongs to the, the ancient world. But I'm also here to tell you today that it's something that is alive and well in our world. Something that I've even seen in my international travels around the world, that there's many places where idols are still put on a pedestal and worship day to day. And really, when you think about idolatry, it gets, about, it gets down to who you are, the core of who you are. You are a worshiper. You can't help but make much of or praise something or someone in your life. And every day, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, you're encouraged by your environment and by the people around you to worship something. And all idolatry begins, according to Scripture, when we choose to worship and build our lives around something other than the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, often when you think about idolatry, it's not bad things. It's not necessarily a statue on a pedestal. It's good things like success, comfort, relationships, getting a job, you know, having good things in your life. But idolatry begin, begins when we take these things, these good things that are in our lives, and we give them almost an ultimate existence for us, like an ultimate place in our lives, and we continue or start to build our, our lives around them. We almost give them a godlike existence in our life. And that's when they become our idols. And because of sin, because we live in a fallen, broken world, everyone everywhere struggles with idolatry. We take what we know about God, we suppress it in unrighteousness, and then we try to make God in our image, a God that we can control, a God that's actually going to prop us up. And, you know, even though we multiply the idols we have in our lives, I think what we'll find often is that our idols fail us and leave us wanting only more and more and more. And there's this huge gaping soul in our, in our hole in our soul. And the Apostle Paul has good news for us tonight, that God has acted on our behalf to save us from our idols. And the proof he's given of that is the resurrection of Jesus. So let's consider that further in our passage tonight, looking at Acts 17, 16 through 34. So if you've had any time to read the book of Acts, what you'll notice is that the book of Acts is all about the continued work of Jesus. You know, it follows the Gospels accounts, and it's about the commission that he's given to his disciples to go to the ends of the earth, to take the good news of who he is and what he's done to the ends of the earth. It's about the, the growth of his church, the growth of his kingdom, expanding to all nations and breaking down um, the barriers and dividers of separation as it goes. And what we'll also see in the book of Acts is that every time the gospel goes to a new place, it confronts the idols of its hearers and the culture surrounding it. And so the first point from our, our passage tonight that I'd like for you to see in the text is that there is no neutrality between the triune God and idols. And we see that here with Paul's confrontation of idols in Athens. 
You know, Paul is, is an explorer of cities. He's keenly interested in what people worship. And as he walks around Athens, he sees a city full of idols. And what might be subtle and implied in our day was visual and explicit in Paul's day. You know, people in Athens, they had a god for just about everything. A god for the sun, a god for the moon, a god for fertility, a god for food. Um, and as Paul is looking around at the city, he's just, he's, he's brought, you know, he's broken in his spirit. He's provoked in his spirit. He's saddened by what he sees. And it, and it moves him in such a way that he wants to do something about it. So he begins preaching in synagogues, in the marketplace, to anyone who would, who would listen. And he's preaching Christ and his resurrection to those around him. And apparently he makes quite a stir because Epicureans and Stoic philosophers you know, find him, seek him out, want to hear more about what he has to say. And maybe at the risk of oversimplification, Epicureans and Stoics are kind of like the progressives and the conservatives of our day. The Epicureans are those who would say, you do you. Just go enjoy your life. Have fun. You know, break all the rules. Like, life is short. Go enjoy it to the fullest. And the uh, Stoic philosophers were just on the opposite side. They said, you know, only virtue is what you need in life. You need to have um, character qualities about you. You need to follow the rules. You need to control yourself. And then you'll have peace in life. And actually, in both of these schools of thought, the body and the world are something of contempt, something almost to be disregarded. Um, both, both schools of thought wanted to escape the body uh, because Epicureans just saw it as a tool to be used to found pleasure. Stoics found it as a tool to seek out virtue. And that's where the resurrection is so interesting to them because preaching Jesus in the resurrection doesn't fit into either of those categories. You know, Paul was proclaiming to them that both virtue and pleasure could be found in this person, Jesus, who was raised from the dead bodily. And that's both intriguing and appalling to both schools of thought. It cannot be found, like, life can't be found in letting yourself go or following all the rules. It's found in this man who God raised up to be uh, life for the world. And so God is redeeming um, us, he's redeeming our bodies, he's redeeming this world through the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and Epicurean and Stokes alike couldn't make sense of this God that would so intimately weave himself in to the world and, and seek out his people. And so, you know, they, they called Paul a, an idle babbler in this passage. And the Greek term for that is someone who kind of like picks out somebody's juiciest thoughts and kind of tries to match them together. And so they see Paul as this idle babbler trying to take something from the Epicureans, trying to take something from the Stoics, take something from the thought world around him and kind of mash it all together. But they're intrigued by this, so they invite him to the Areopagus, which, you know, in Greek mythology was the place where Poseidon was put on trial for the murder um, of one of the, the Greek gods. And so it's almost like Paul is being invited to be put on trial to see if what he says has any weight to it. Uh, the Athenians were addicted to religious novelty, so at least they'd get a good show out of it. At least they'd see something different or new. Uh, but what they didn't realize is that their gods were the ones that are actually being brought on trial here in this situation. You know, if you spend any time reading some missionary biographies, uh, what you'll see is through even uh, modern-day mission biographies and ancient uh, missionary biographies is that God does not play nice with idols. One of my favorite missionary stories from ancient church is about a man named Boniface, a very strong, powerful name. And he was, uh, he was uh, basically an evangelist 
to the Germanic people um, kind of in the fourth century. He went around kind of that, you know, what we know as modern day Germany, evangelizing tribes there. And in his zeal to reach these tribes, he did not play nice with their idols. Uh, it's recorded in his biography that he came in contact with one particular tribe that had this massive oak tree, and they, they believed to be planted by the god Jupiter, which before that was Zeus, before that was Thor. And uh, Boniface comes to this tree, and he just starts hacking it away, and it, it you know, fells in, in a couple of, uh, like swoops, and it just falls over and breaks into all these pieces. And instead of getting really mad that they just, he just destroyed their god, these people, they're like, wait, what is the god you worship? We want to worship that god. And so in his zeal to you know, proclaim Jesus, Boniface does not play nice with the idols. But by doing so, he also showed this tribe that God was more powerful than the gods that they were worshiping. So in application, kind of for this first point, you know, seeing Paul provoked by the idols around him, um, we need to recognize that idolatry is destructive for us, for our relationships around us, and Jesus is at work to save you from your idols and from the idols of those around you. He, he doesn't share your heart with other gods. He wants all of who you are. He wants all of your worship. He alone is to be praised. And so he is, is at work to save you from this false worship. You know, Tim Keller defines idolatry this way, taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your life upon it. So as you're leaving this place tonight, I want you to uh, leave with this question as well. What is it that you think you're missing? What is it that you think will make you complete? I want you to consider that question because that's likely where your idols are housed. And maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's good grades. Maybe it's getting that job one day. Maybe it's finding um, a reputation for yourself being funny or being smart, being humorous. Um, these are places where Jesus wants to set you free from your idols. And so consider that this week and think about how you can bring that to the Lord and give them those desires and those, those things, those longings that you have in your heart. Second, are you provoked by the idolatry of those around you? I think this question um, requires a little bit of thought. You know, we live in an extremely polarized age. We often see dialogue as us versus them. Um, and that's you know, forced upon us in very powerful ways in our modern world. Um, we might be provoked by the idolatry of that student group or that tribe or that party or that sorority or that fraternity that we're at odds with. But are we provoked by the idolatry of our own tribe, of the people that we associate with? Or do we just make excuses for it? You know, Epicureans, Stoics, progressives, conservatives, Pharisees, prostitutes, all are in need of Jesus. All of us, we, we all need Jesus. Um, and so where, um, sorry, so where are the blind spots in our tribe? And how does Jesus speak to that? If you consider yourself to be a Christian in the room tonight, you know, we need to know that like, Jesus calls us to be more about his kingdom and about the good news of what he has done than it is even about being an American, about being an Aggie, or being a part of whatever subgroup we find ourselves a part of. Jesus pours out his blessing on us that we would not hoard it to ourselves, but that we would seek to extend it to those around us, even those that we might consider to be our enemies. Jesus calls us to love them, to pray for them, and to even seek their good. Lastly, on this, this first point, uh, we also need to not think that we are immune to the idol of novelty, uh, as the Athenians were. I think we're more addicted to novelty than we ever have been, especially if you think about just the impact of the internet and social media upon us. Think of the thousands of podcasts, 
YouTube channels, um, social media outlets that are just at your fingertips. We need to seriously consider what effect these things are having upon us. The proliferation of new ideas carries with it this subtle lie that somehow the Bible and Christianity are not enough, that they're outdated, that they're insufficient. But the reality is that new ideas are trendy. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. But the Word of God, that is the thing that has stood this test of time. That is the thing that you need most to discern the world around you. And so do your, does your, um, in, or I guess your connection to social media or other media outlets inform your study of God's Word? Or does your study of God's Word inform your study of media and your interaction with media? To quote another fellow campus minister, um, a man named Richie Sessions, we don't need new truth. We just need to get old truth deeper into our bones. So second point from our passage uh, tonight, all idolatry tries to contain God, but only when we realize that God has made us and set the boundaries for our existence can we truly understand him and live as we are made to do so. So Paul is quite crafty in the way he dismantles Athenian idolatry. He kind of starts with this backhanded compliment, I see that you are very religious. It's like maybe one of your friends is like, oh, you know, I can, I'm not religious, but I consider myself to be spiritual. He's like, well, yeah, that's good. Like, great. Like, you're seeking out something higher than yourself. But then it, this Greek word for religious also has kind of a backhanded, you know, uh, insult to it. It's either devout or superstitious. So Paul is commending the ways that the Athenians are trying to seek out God. But he's also um, kind of saying, like, but you're getting it all wrong. Like, you're totally making a lot of mistakes in this process. Um, so even though he's provoked by the idolatry... He also doesn't like shy away in disgust. He leans in and tries to seek out the weaknesses of the Athenian worship. And he finds one, um, this idol to an unknown God. What a strange admission in a city full of idols that there's still um, this one God that they haven't yet discovered. Like it's a city full of all these different gods that have names, but there's still this one to try to fill in the gaps of what's missing. And it's into this place that Paul speaks. And here's the fundamental point the Athenians miss. You can't put God in a box. You know, the greatest deception of sin is that we somehow think that God needs to fit into our lives, our priorities, and our agendas, rather than us fitting into his big story, into the story he's writing for all creation, the story he's writing for redemption. In our sinfulness, we want God to relate to us on our own terms, but God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't live in temples made by mankind. He doesn't need anything from us. We can't serve him with anything that he hasn't already given to us. We cannot contain him in images of gold, silver, or stone according to our own imaginations. We can only know God on his terms and not our own. So Paul is resituating his audience in the story that they're actually part of. That God is the one who made everything. God rules over everything. He gives us everything. And he has made from one person all the nations of the earth. But he has done so with a great purpose in mind, that we might seek him and know him and feel our way towards him, though he is not far from us. He's not hiding from you. He's not like, I hope you get this figured out. I hope you find the right solution to have a relationship with me. He wants you to know him. And he has acted in such a way that you would know him. And so God is the one who makes us in his image. We can't make God in our image. And this would be a problem, again, for the Athenians living in a city full of idols. 
So how does God respond to their idolatry? You know, God is certainly jealous for our hearts. He doesn't play nice with idols. Um, he's a jealous God. But what do we see here? We see that God moves towards us with patience and with grace. Um, we see that God has overlooked the times of ignorance. So what does Paul mean by this? Uh, another New Testament scholar, a guy named Dennis Johnson, he interprets it this way. God has postponed judgment while not excusing idolatry. Paul insists that the Athenians' ignorance in the past, far from excusing them, is actually the thing that's made them necessary for them to turn back to God in repentance and escape the coming judgment. God does not bring swift judgment down on their heads, but he is patient, he is kind, giving people time to repent from their idolatry. But then too, we see he also provides a gracious escape from judgment through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has made all people that they would seek him and now he commands all people everywhere to repent and turn back to him. Why? Because God, uh, again, will not let sin and evil and idolatry go unpunished. These things are the things that have corrupted his world, are hurting his good creation. He's going to deal with them. He is going to right every wrong. So the question for us is, how are we not also sweeped away in that judgment? It's only through God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ to send his son on our behalf to take the burden of our sin upon himself to die upon a cross, but then to rise again, showing that he has power over sin and death. And it's only as we take hold of this can we know that God's grace is for us, that God wants this relationship with us. And to reject such an offer and to cling to our idols, that only leaves us uh, with judgment. It's only through Jesus that we can truly find life and truly be restored to the purpose that we were created for, to know God, to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. Just to maybe illustrate this a little bit further about just, you know, when we see God the right way, our lives work as they are meant to. Um, a little while back, I uh, came across a scientific article about um, how they reintroduced wolves into the Yellowstone National Park back in 1995. Apparently, somebody came along and said, you know, wolves are bad for tourists. We got to get rid of the wolves in the park. And that was a huge mistake, because apparently removing the wolves from the park led to an overpopulation of deer, and it started killing the trees. It started killing the ecological environment in Yellowstone Park. And in 1995, right before they reintroduced these wolves into the park, there was only one lone beaver in the whole park of Yellowstone. But then just introducing just a small pack of wolves into the park, everything began to change almost overnight. Um, you know, the deer were kind of marshaled into their, their other places in the park where they're not killing the trees. The trees kind of came back really quickly. And with the new trees, the beavers came back into the park. And with beavers, dams were built again. And new other wildlife was able to come back into the park. And then one of the craziest things about all this is that the waterways themselves, the rivers, changed. Because the environment was now working as it should, the, you know, there'd be less floods, there'd be less uh, corrosion of the riverbanks, like the whole park was just transformed in a few years, and it brought flourishing and life, and made everything as it should be again, just by introducing a few wolves back into the park. Just crazy. And, you know, by way of analogy, um, and maybe an application here as well, we must understand that we cannot, again, deal with God on our own terms. Um, that never works out well for us. We cannot just accept the, the parts of God that we like, like, God, we don't like the wolves. <laughs> Get the wolves out of here. Um, we can't just take, like, oh, I just want a God of love, justice, our love and mercy, 
without God's justice, without God's righteousness and his sovereignty and his jealousy, um, to do so would make a God in our image. And when we try to make a God in our image, we actually end up becoming less human. Um, we actually are out of touch with the purpose for which we are made. Only when we attend to God as he truly is can our lives reflect his image and his glory as we were made to do. So how do we not put God in a box? Again, I think the short answer, maybe the uh, simple answer, is to give ourselves to the study of God's word, um, which it, it's very complicated, and it's, it's uh, um, not, not so complicated. Forgive me here. Uh, it's, it's great, this great gift that God has given us, that he, again, wants us to know him. He wants us to seek after him. So he's given us his very word to do that. And how do we attend to God's word? We, this is part of it. Coming to large group, coming and sitting under the preaching of God's word. Going to church on Sunday, sitting under the preaching of God's word there. Being with other Christians, learning the scriptures together, studying it on our own. Uh, these are the ways that we attend to God as he truly is. Um, and again, as you read God's word, we can see you know, where we've made misrepresentations of God. You know, scripture gives us a lot of tensions to live in. That God is both transcendent and eminent. He's you know, high above us, but he comes close to know us and to be with us. You know, God is three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but the one same true God. You know, Jesus is fully man and fully God. He's loving and just, good and powerful. It's sometimes hard for us to hold these things together in our head. But the, what scriptures compel us to do time and time again is to live in the tension. To not swing one way or the other and make a God in our image. Too many like, heresies have resulted from trying to explain the mystery of the Trinity or the mystery of Christ in a simplistic way. It's easy to think God is little when our problems seem large. Only by seeing how big God is through his word can our problems be put into perspective. Can we attend to God as he truly is? So last point here in our passage. Um, seeing that, you know, God does not play nice with idols. There's no neutrality between God and idols. God um, can't be put in a box. He actually puts us in a box, if you will, for our good and for his glory. So how do we, when we begin to see that, you know, God himself is the one we truly need, how do we begin to talk to other people about their idolatry? Um, as someone who spent time overseas, again, ministering to people in another culture, I love this particular passage because it's one of the greatest examples we have of Paul contextualizing his message to his audience. He's taking from their culture and explaining the gospel in, in terms and ideas that they can understand that are accessible to them. And it's a time-consuming work, but it's, um, and it's a labor of love, but I think it's a great example of how you can love people and communicate the gospel to people that are different from you. Um, and yet, you know, you see here at the end of our passage that Paul doesn't have a silver bullet for his gospel presentation. He doesn't have this knockout presentation that's going to, you know, win people to Christ every time. But the, the results are actually still in God's hands. And so you see from the Areopagus that some mock, some want to hear more, and then some follow Paul away from the Areopagus and believe. And so I think, you know, when we um, think about talking to other people about Jesus, we, we see this great gift that we have in Jesus, and we want to share that with others. We got to believe first that actually Jesus, he himself, is the one that worked to save other people as well. And it's ultimately um, his work that matters most. So when we proclaim the gospel, we can actually rest in the fact that it doesn't, it doesn't, relate, uh, doesn't rest on our shoulders to you know, 
bring about the results. God is the one who does that. God is the one who delights to even use us in that process. Um, what we have to give to our friends, our families, our classmates, our roommates, acquaintances, is ourselves participating in God's love for us. We can't control whether somebody rejects us or accepts us because of Christ. And we're only called to be faithful, to witness to his love and his mercy and his grace towards us. And it's through the whole work of the Holy Spirit that God convinces a human heart that he is real. And secondly, um, you know, we, we, need to, we still need to imitate Paul's example as best we can. Uh, I think he gives us a great example here. He goes out of his way to communicate the gospel and love to his audience in ways that they can understand. And we should seek to do the same. Throughout this passage, Paul's doing two things. He's making points of contact with his audience, and he's also applying points of pressure on their worldview. He's reasoning with people. He understands their poets and their philosophers. Uh, he, again, makes those meaningful connections. But then he also sees where something is lacking in their worldview, and he seeks to speak into that place. And he's bold to claim that Jesus is different. I don't know how many of you played football in high school or middle school. Maybe you've watched those game day videos from uh, your, the, the opponent that you're about to play. And in that, in that exercise, you're trying to see where your opponent has strengths and weaknesses, and you're trying to maximize your own strengths while you're capitalizing also on your opponent's weaknesses. And it's kind of what Paul's doing here, except in the preaching of the gospel. And so maybe to work this out a little bit more, maybe you have a friend on campus, and you know, they like to say things like, oh, you know, life is just karma. Like, that's karma. Um, next time they say that, you know, invite them to like, hey, what do you mean by that? What, what, what is karma? Tell me about that. As I understand it, as I've come to understand it from different friends that I've interacted with, karma is that the good you, good you do in life will come back to you, and the bad you do will come back to you, and there's no escaping it either way. And, you know, to make a point of connection with your friend who, you know, maybe living in a system of karma, it, uh, you totally rate, like, hey, I, I want to do good things that good would come back to me. And, yeah, I, I totally think that evil should be judged. I totally think that bad, the bad we do should be judged in some way. But then applying pressure points, we come in questions such as, but what if I do good and, and only evil comes back to me? If I experience evil only, does that mean that I'm evil? What if somebody evil has only good things happen to them? What about Jesus, who arguably was the greatest human being, who did the most good for everyone? He was put on a cross to die. How does karma work there? Um, you know, Karma, I think, is a, a system that can make people either extremely depressed or extremely prideful. And, but Jesus tells us that our good deeds are never enough to get us into heaven, to give us a relationship with God, but that our sin is never so great that his grace and his mercy can overcome it. You know, karma seems, what, seems to be what's fair, but I think at the end of the day, all of us are longing for grace, longing for the mercy of God on our behalf. So in closing, I'll, I'll close with two more final application points. Um, we often don't want to talk to others about Jesus if you're a Christian and you know Jesus, we often don't want to talk to others about Jesus because we might still be housing this idol in our heart that uh, we care too much about what people think about us. Uh, we might be afraid of that they won't like us if um, they hear what we have to say about Jesus. And we might be afraid of looking stupid, not being able to answer their questions. Um, we might be afraid of even our own doubts being unearthed and being like, oh, wow, I, I, didn't, I don't actually believe this myself. Um, so we self-protect, we hide, we cover up, we you know, remain shy. Um, we often care about the thoughts of them more than we care about what men would think of Jesus if they truly knew him. 
And this passage, I think, is a reminder that you know, God's grace for us is so great that it overcomes even our fears and our, all our idols. And Jesus moves towards us that we would be blessed and that we might also be a blessing. It's not wrong to want to be liked by others. That's definitely not wrong at all. Um, it's only wrong to be liked, to demand to be liked, to make an idol out of being liked. Um, and when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back, actually, we're going to be in this place where we will get to delight in one another perfectly, where there's no more shame, there's no more guilt, there's no more hiding from, one, from each other. And we should want that for our neighbors and for ourselves, for our, your classmates, for your roommates. Um, that Jesus really is the most precious gift that we could give somebody else. And when we realize what we have in him, we'll want to give that away to others. And Jesus wants to kill this idol in our hearts of worshiping the thoughts of men more than the thoughts of God towards us. And lastly, um, God is bringing people to us that they might hear the gospel. You know, we read in verses 26 and 27 that he has established the times and their dwelling places that they might seek God and that they might know him and feel their way towards him. Um, so God has actually ordained people in your life that they would hear the good news about Jesus from you. And we can't expect that they'll just come running to hear that message from you. We still must go to them and, and help them to understand who Jesus is. And we can ask God to show us those people, show us who he wants us to talk to about Jesus. And, you know, a lot of it is actually just, you know, opening ourselves up to those around us, getting to know them, getting to know what their dreams and their likes are, their dislikes are, you know, being curious about them so that we can begin to also invite them into our lives, into our homes, and help them to know this great God that we worship. Talking to others about our faith is actually not as scary as it seems. It's actually a place where your faith can grow and be sharpened. Uh, most of the time it requires just asking good questions of people and staying connected in a relationship with them. And I think more than ever, people in our day, and maybe you're asking this question too, um, are asking this question, is Christianity safe? I think more than rational proofs and arguments, people are wondering if they can find community with others. Can they find community with Christians? And that's exactly what we can provide it's a place to come and belong and see this great God that we worship, a God who has loved us and has given us life in Christ Jesus. And we should share that. We want them to know that life as well. It's a community where they can come and ask their questions and see that there's something different about us. A community where God's grace um, is on display for them. So let us pray that we be that kind of people. Let us pray that God will free us from our own idols and that God would use us to help call people out of their idolatry, out of all the false worship they have, that they might know the one true living God and know him through Christ Jesus. Let's pray that God would make his blessing to those around us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father God, thank you again uh, for your word. Thank you that you have made yourself known to us, that you're not a God who stands far off, that you're not a God who is distant or disconnected, that you're a God who has entered into this world to save us. And you've given proof of that to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you expose in us this week all the ways that we worship idols, all the ways that we build our lives around something that is not you, something that is one of your good gifts that could never fill us, could never give us the life that we're looking for. Would you expose those things in us? Would you help us to remove those things from our hearts? that we might truly worship you, that we might truly know the purpose that we are made for, which is to bring you glory. And by doing so, Lord, would you help us also to be a blessing to those around us. 
as we receive the gospel more and more into our hearts, Lord, help us to also give it to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.